Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg, with co-host Sarah Whitmire, the WFIU, WTIU News Bureau Chief. We're talking today about cryptocurrency, and we have three guests with us. William Luther is Associate Professor of Economics at Florida Atlantic University. Todd Nesbitt is Assistant Professor of Economics at Ball State University. And Russell Rhodes is Clinical Associate Professor of Financial Management at IU Kelly's School of Business in Indianapolis. If you have questions or comments for the show, you can send them to us at um, news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can send them by email there. You can also follow us on Twitter and contact us on Twitter with your questions or comments. We're at Noon Edition. So thank you all for being here with us today. Cryptocurrency is something um, pretty new for a lot of people. I know you, you guys are all experts in it. And I guess I wanted to start out just by asking, you know, when you started studying the idea of cryptocurrency and, you know, how you got involved. And I'll start with William Luther from Florida Atlantic University. Sure. Well, uh, thanks for having me. I, I first heard about Bitcoin way back in 2010. Uh, which was pretty early in the Bitcoin space. Uh, Bitcoin launched in 2009. And one of my colleagues had, had presented an early research uh, paper on, on Bitcoin. Um, I'm, a, I'm a monetary economist, and uh, I've always kind of been interested in peculiar monies. Uh, I, I wrote my dissertation on the monetary system of Somalia, uh, which was a, a money that didn't have a, a government to support it. So, so Bitcoin uh, certainly appealed to to those interests in um, in the early days of Bitcoin, and and yeah, I've been I've been studying it ever since. When you talk about you know, I, I mentioned cryptocurrency. You talked about you mentioned Bitcoin. Um, Bitcoin is a kind of cryptocurrency. Is that correct? That's right. Uh, it's usually considered the the first cryptocurrency, though uh, there there certainly were forerunners. Um, David Chom introduced uh, DigiCash in the 1990s, but, but it never really took off. And there were some others as well. Uh, Bitcoin, uh, which, which launched in, in 2009, really sparked this um, blockchain-based cryptocurrency explosion that, that we're seeing today. All right. Thank you. Todd Nesbitt from Ball State. What about you? Yeah, thanks for having me as well. Um, yeah, so uh, as is often the case with any any new technology and new ideas, uh, it's it's oftentimes my students that actually bring it up in my classes, and uh, that's the case here. So back in roughly probably right around 2011, 2012, uh, when talking about monetary policy and, and money generally, uh, students started bringing up Bitcoin as like, oh, how does this fit in that space? And um, being a uh, a public economist, somebody that's, that studies private and public governance, I became particularly interested in the potential for more of a decentralized money, you know, from the from uh, not issued by our government, but uh, you know, from the private sector in some way, and just to see what its potential was in the long run. And uh, so, I think that there's you know, there, there's a lot of hurdles that Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies have, and, and trying to to become a stable. Uh, 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 aspect of, of that decentralized money um, to be, be used in a medium of exchange for transactions. But it is really interesting overall. Um, and I think we'll see a lot of uh, future innovations that probably none of us can really predict overall in that space. I'm looking forward to learning a lot about that today. Uh, Russell Rhodes from the IU Kelly School of Business in Indianapolis. So Russell, how did you get involved? 
Um, in, in kind of a funny roundabout way and a little bit later than the other two guys, um, before joining Kelly, um, I actually ran education for the Chicago Board Options Exchange, and SIBO has a futures exchange, and they, by a week, uh, won the race to launch the first Bitcoin futures contracts. And in the lead up to that, uh, I got drafted into uh, being the educational representative on a a roadshow uh, about the new futures. And our partners in that were the Winklevoss twins, um, Tyler and Cameron Winklevoss, who most people know is uh, being involved in Facebook and losing out Facebook to Zuckerberg. But now they're heavily involved in the crypto space. And I was very skeptical before the roadshow, but uh, those two guys really turned me into a true believer. How, how'd they do that? I uh, just talking about the uses, uh, especially as a store of value. Um, that that was that was the one that really resonated um, with me. Uh, just that uh, you'd you'd be able to uh, participate, and then also being able to kind of participate from the very beginning, almost in a monetary way. And they would use Facebook as the example. You know, it was community grown, and um, you know we could all you know we could all utilize Facebook, but uh, getting involved in the crypto space and being involved with Bitcoin, uh, you can be involved in the network, but you can also uh, hopefully over time profit from that as well. Uh, so that was, uh, I think the, that, that story, which they tell a lot better than I do, um, is really what started to get me convinced that, that this was going to be something that would stay with us. Well, I re- really appreciate all three of you being here. And I have to say, we have a, a, a very intelligent audience here. Uh, you know, we're based on the Indiana University campus. We have a lot of smart listeners out there, but I know you three are experts in this, this area. It's an area that I think a lot of us uh, want to know more about, and we're, you're going to have to take, take us down to probably the eighth grade level today. So I appreciate anything you can do to, uh, to explain this to us. So my first question, I, I, I guess, is, you know, I see numbers for Bitcoin. I think Sarah said in the, the, um, the billboard for the show that Bitcoin hit a new high of more than $69,000 last month for one Bitcoin. So how do I how do I get involved in this cryptocurrency market if I want to? And do I have to have sixty nine thousand dollars or I think today it's maybe fifty eight thousand dollars? William, you want to start that? Sure. Yeah. So um, you can buy a fraction of a Bitcoin. Um, so the, the most common way to to acquire some Bitcoin is to to go to a, an exchange like Coinbase um, and and just purchase a balance of Bitcoin. You can also acquire Bitcoin if you're, say, a merchant and someone is willing to, to purchase the goods or services that you're selling for Bitcoin. Or if uh, you're a little more sophisticated, you can actually participate in the processing of Bitcoin transactions. And if you're successful in doing so, then you can be rewarded some Bitcoin uh, uh, via the system. But uh, far and away, the most common way to access um, uh, Bitcoin uh, to acquire some Bitcoin is just to purchase some Bitcoin from from an exchange. If I can follow up really quickly, is that would that be like an investment purchase more than um, you know going out and buying a new pair of shoes? Well, um, I a lot of folks who are interested in Bitcoin are interested uh, in Bitcoin as a financial asset that they can acquire today and it will appreciate over time. Um, I'm, I'm much more interested in Bitcoin as, as a medium of exchange, as a, 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 a payment mechanism. So that, that whole store of value or financial asset idea is really contingent on the future value of Bitcoin being sufficiently greater than the current value of Bitcoin. If that's not the case, then you should just hold some exchange traded funds or something else uh, in, in, you know, as a store of value. So we, we would need to ask, why is it that we would expect the future value of, of Bitcoin to be sufficiently greater than the current value? And the, the most plausible explanation, I think, is that it uh, would serve to a greater extent as a medium of exchange in the future as, uh, than it does today. Uh, really, you know, at its core, Bitcoin is a technology for making transactions. And so that demand for Bitcoin is ultimately going to be driven by the demand to make transactions with Bitcoin. Uh, to the extent that we expect 
more people will be interested in making more transactions uh, with Bitcoin in the future, then sure, we, we, it's reasonable to expect that Bitcoin's uh, price will uh, go up over time. Um, but uh, for me, I, I think of it much more as acquiring uh, a money, like maybe you want to acquire some euros or um, some yuan or some other currency. I think of Bitcoin more as a currency. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate that that perspective that Will um, is sharing there. So even if you, know, you think about uh, to try to simplify it to something that all of us are probably more familiar with is just the uh, the dollar. Um, and so the only reason that we are willing to accept a dollar in exchange for our labor services is because we expect somebody else to be willing in the future to accept it in exchange for some good or service that I want. And that's the same thing, I think, with, with Bitcoin here, is that its primary value is going to be with that expectation that at some point, some other people are willing to, to exchange it um, in, 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 again, in exchange for some good or service in the future. So uh, I, I think that Will is you know, fully agree that I think the long-term value here is all about that future medium, you know, value as a medium of exchange. And that's what's giving it the store of value that we're seeing where, again, it got up to, you know, uh, you know, to that $69,000 uh, know, per Bitcoin um, now. I mean, that or both last month, um, that is all based on that future, the expectation of future use. Oh, okay, so I'm here to ask all of the really dumb questions, I think, because I, I really don't understand this. So why would anyone have any faith in this system that it's really going to be worth anything? Because it's not from what I mean, is it regulated at all? Like currency where we kind of understand the value there or? It's actually the Bitcoin, the CFTC jumped in, which is, uh, you know, the commodity futures uh, trading corporation, I think, but they focus in on the commodity markets. They, they uh, expanded their regulatory, um, you know, what they charge themselves with paying attention to, to financial futures and other types of financial derivatives. So even though it initially was, and I think it actually falls under the, uh, um, the, the, the different regulators that pay attention to farms more than the financial markets, but they, they stepped up in a previous uh, leader at the uh, CFTC uh, basically declared it a commodity. <laughs> and really it was just so that somebody would be properly, um, you know, regulating it because I think a lot of reluctance out there to get involved in Bitcoin right now is this impression that it's very much of a wild West um, uh, situation, but then also uh, institutions are a little, uh, and, and I deal in a, in a consulting manner, I deal with a lot of different pension funds uh, who are thinking about dipping their toe into this space. Uh, they're really reluctant to get involved in something that they're afraid the regulatory landscape is going to change on them very quickly. So uh, there is some reluctance out there because uh, nobody feel there are a lot of people that feel like nobody's watching the store right now. Uh, but that is getting better. Uh, and, uh, but it's, you know, I think regulation is messy and it's going to take some time till we get, uh, you know, final answers on who's keeping an eye on Bitcoin and, and who is really in charge of, or at least in the United States, in, in charge of monitoring all the cryptocurrencies. So how did this really get started and get some sort of monetary value uh, attached to it? Well, I think at its uh, at the core here, uh, the core issue is that that people want to make transactions, and s some transactions are just more easily made with an asset like Bitcoin than with our our traditional uh, uh, payment systems. So, suppose that you're you're working here in the U.S., but but your family is in Guatemala, uh, and you want to send back some remittances to them each month. Well, how do you do that? You can, of course, go through Western Union, but that's going to involve some pretty high fees. Um, Bitcoin, on the other hand, is a, a technology that crosses borders pretty easily, that can be transferred instantaneously. So if you're, if you're interested in transferring value virtually anywhere in the world, almost instantaneously, at a very low cost, then a, a technology like Bitcoin is at least potentially uh, your, your best uh, alternative. When 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 I was involved in the roadshow introducing the Bitcoin futures, I, the roadshow was actually in Asia. And when we would get that question, and, and I'm kind of uh, 
just reflecting the previous answer. But uh, right now it's Friday afternoon in um, you know in, on the East Coast, and it's already the weekend over in Singapore. And we were in Singapore, um, and and it was noted that at this time right now, if I wanted to wire cash to somebody in Singapore, um, it probably would be quicker for me to get a bag of money and get on a plane and go over there because uh, of the banks being closed for 48 hours. That's not true of Bitcoin. That's not true of uh, Ethereum or a lot of the other networks as well. But I guess, sorry, I really, how did it come that there is like a dollar figure attached to it? And when you're talking about that dollar figure changing, um, is it like the stock market in that way, I suppose? Yeah. That's a, that, I think that's a good way for Lehman to, to look at it is just that price is how much a single Bitcoin is going to cost you. And it's being influenced um, by, you know, buying pressure and selling pressure that's that's coming up with uh, hopefully some sort of equilibrium price. Uh, but yeah, and the other thing is it does, uh, it's open 24 hours. So uh, unlike the stock market, it, it does not close. Uh, and it, it's kind of interesting in the early days, it seemed like Bitcoin would always go up on Saturdays. And I think that's people were hearing about it. They finally had some time away from work to do a little research on it. And because you could open an account and buy it on the weekends uh, for a couple of years, it seemed like it was it was almost 100% winning percentage on trading if you bought on Friday and maybe sold on Sunday night just because you could see the new participants coming in. I think of it much more like a, an exchange rate than a stock price. Um, you know, if you want to buy 100 euros today, it's going to cost you about $113. Well, why is that? Well, because some people want to make transactions with euros. Um, and uh, so they're, they're willing to, to pay for those euros. Uh, and uh, they, they have dollars at the moment. And so there's someone else in the world who uh, has euros and wants dollars, right? And so um, that, that uh, 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 underlying demand to make transactions is ultimately why there's a euro to dollar exchange rate and similarly why there's a bitcoin to dollar exchange rate and to kind of build on that i think that looking at you know pre-cryptocurrency era um i mean you look at a lot of the the games that were out there you know world uh world of warcraft um you know there was in-game tokens that you had to have to to be able to to advance in the game and it got to the point where people were willing to just outright buy tokens from other individuals rather than complete whatever task in the game to to, to advance and that's again that that the the value of those in-game tokens does fluctuate with demand for those tokens um how much do are people playing the the game itself and, and so forth and it's very much like with bitcoin um you know, the, the exchange rate between a dollar, you know, our currency and a dollar with Bitcoin is based on, well, you know, how much are people trying to use Bitcoin in other transactions or as that store of value for future? Yeah, I don't necessarily, you guys keep bringing up the, um, you know, eventually everybody's going to use it for transactions and that's why you want to buy it. I don't agree with that. And, and it's probably because I'm, I come from, you know, the hedge fund space before I switched over to the academic space. And I, I think a lot of people are buying Bitcoin based on kind of the greater fool theory where they think they're going to be able to sell it to somebody else at a higher price. Um, I, 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 my personal way of getting into Bitcoin every time I get paid, and I've been doing this for about five years now, I buy $100 worth of Bitcoin. I don't even know how much I have. I don't even really check in on it that much, but I'll probably retire in about 20 years. And my assumption is if this thing is really accepted, um, I, you know, I'll be able to cash it in and it will help with my retirement. So, um, you know, I, I, th- I, I know a lot of individuals that are interested in Bitcoin, not because they think they're ever going to be paying their bills or buying things with it, but just because they think the price is going to continue to go up. Well, I think that um, I wouldn't go so far to say that everyone is going to use Bitcoin in every transaction. I wouldn't uh, go anywhere near that far. I would say that there's some chance that Bitcoin functions as a niche money to make some transactions that it's particularly well suited to make, that that's the fundamental source of Bitcoin's value. And it's only because of that potential that there's any reason to to believe that its value will go up over time. If the value of Bitcoin is is, uh, driven solely by folks 
looking for some greater fool, then I, I feel sad for those folks because uh, I think a, a fool and his money is soon parted. Um, so I, I'm much more interested in the in the transactions demand there. All right. Well, I love the conversation among the three of you. It's uh, it's great, and it really helps to have all three of you talking about. Um, you know, your different pers- perspectives on it. Um, I want to remind our listeners that we have uh, Russell Rhodes from the IU Kelly School of Business in Indianapolis, Todd Nesbitt from the uh, Department of Economics at Ball State University, and William Luther, Associate Professor of Economics at Florida Atlantic University. We're talking about cryptocurrency today. If you have questions or comments, please send them to us, news at indianapublicmedia.org and send them, or you can send them on Twitter to at noon edition. You can follow us there with your questions or comments. Um, This is, I, you know, I'm a little older than the rest of you here today. And, and I wonder if, if there's some um, generational issue with, you talk about the, the reluctance that pension funds don't want to dip their toes into cryptocurrency. Um, I got to tell you, I just listened to the three of you talk and, it made me kind of eager to have some on one hand, but um, as Russell Rhodes said, I'm not sure I would, I would ever look at it. I would just hope that it was going up. I mean, you didn't say that, but that's what I would say. Um, so is this, is this something that uh, if you look at who's buying cryptocurrency or who's buying um, Bitcoin, and didn't you mention uh, Ethereum? Is that another kind of cryptocurrency, Russell? Yes, it is. It's uh, it's in, and there are a lot of people in the crypto space that that are that like to project when will Ethereum overtake Bitcoin as far as um, I guess we can refer to it as market cap because um, you know Bitcoin was the first one out of the box and and uh, I, I've heard people in the space refer to Bitcoin as being kind of like MySpace, which was a predecessor to Facebook and. Uh, Ethereum being more like Facebook that is better suited towards making transactions. Gotcha. Okay. So is this something that um, it is a generational issue now, or there are, you know, older investors who are just savvy enough that they're starting to get into this too? Well, Well, I think there's some generational aspect here. Uh, You know, you're going to have a hard time convincing my aunt that she should make payments with her phone, (laughs) whether that's through her, uh, a bank account um, that's denominated in dollars or uh, uh, even more peculiar from her perspective, a cryptocurrency wallet where the units are denominated in uh, Bitcoin. Um, so certainly there are some generational issues here. And, and I know from students that I've had, and, and I, you know, if I ask a student to help me out with a research project and I pay them out of my own pocket, I'm not giving them cash anymore. I'm actually sending them cash via Venmo, which is a, a payment app that, that uses dollars. And I know we're talking about cryptocurrency, but the point is they are so used to the younger generation than the rest of us are so used to basically using their phone for pretty much every transaction at this point that the transition or the thought of using something like Bitcoin is a lot easier for them uh, than folks like myself. When I travel internationally, I still like to have a lot of cash on me just in case uh, I have an issue with one of my credit cards. Uh, I don't feel like people half my age think like that because they've never really run into that issue. We did have a question from uh, w- from one of our listeners about, you know, how do you get people to get over the hump of the initial fear or uncertainty of using it? Todd, do you want to give us this? Yeah, suggestion? I, I know a lot of the early exchanges, there was a, a lot of concern about uh, um, you know, some illegal activity and, and uh, even one of the, the uh, early exchanges um, just walked away with a lot of individuals. Uh, uh, Bitcoins. But um, I think now, I mean, Coinbase seems to be doing really quite well. I think it, it's more about, I think, those exchanges trying to um, establish themselves as reputable, uh, which I think mo- many have at this point. Um, and, you know, especially as, you know, to, to relate this this answer back to the previous question, um, 
the risk preference of of the younger generation is, I mean, they're a lot more risk um, or a lot less risk averse than uh, uh, the older generations, and so they're willing to take those those risks with um, you know dealing with with Bitcoin through Coinbase and other other exchanges there, and so. I think that the more transactions that we see happen um, through through time, I think that it's just going to continue to build uh, on itself in that regard. Just the, the willingness to to engage in this market. So I think it's it, it's just a, a natural progression overall um, to get uh, folks more interested. No, one way to get one way to get people over the hump is is through discounts. So if you think about when you go to the the gas station, you know a lot of gas stations they would much prefer for you to pay with cash instead of using your credit card because they want to avoid those merchant terminal fees and perhaps they're concerned a little bit about chargeback fraud. Uh, and so they'll give you a slight discount if you'll if you'll pay with cash. Um, likewise, if there's some transaction where where Bitcoin is a, a more effective payment mechanism and the seller would like to receive uh, Bitcoin. Um, they can offer a small discount for for folks who are um, uh, perhaps uh, would otherwise pay with some other payment mechanism, and then folks get to decide whether or not the discount is is worth it to acquire the seller's preferred payment mechanism and and pay accordingly. I want to turn it over to Sarah here in a second, but I just have to have to mention that you know because I am a, a little older than the rest of you. Is that there was a time when I'm sure people in my generation and certainly the generation before me could never have conceived of the kind of cashless society that we have become um, just in general, uh, that people don't carry a lot of cash anymore, except when Russell goes to Europe. So <laughs> yeah, you know, money's, money's have changed a lot over the last hundred years. If you go back to you know the early 1930s, uh, folks would have thought it would be really strange if you took your dollar bills to the bank and weren't able to, to convert them for, to gold. Um, that that ended, of course, when when gold was confiscated by the FDR administration. Um, but today, none of us think about going to a bank and exchanging our dollars for for gold. Uh, in fact, that would seem a bit peculiar to us. Um, so big changes uh, uh, over long periods of time like that. Sarah. So um, we got in. We have a couple more questions, but I'll let Bob get to those because I. I want to understand what Bitcoin mining is and how that works. And I guess basically that if, is that how new Bitcoin is released and what is that process? Well, Bitcoin mining, uh, it, the, the whole Bitcoin network is like a giant ledger that keeps track of uh, all the different transactions that, that have occurred in Bitcoin. In fact, uh, when you talk about the Bitcoin network, you're saying this is how you know a programmer definitely created this. Uh, when you talk about the Bitcoin network, you use a capital B. When you talk about the Bitcoin currency, you're supposed to use a small b. They're actually two different things. Um, but the, the, um, the, the mining process involves uh, solving a pretty, you know, a bunch of computers trying to solve a complex uh, math algorithm. And whoever solves it gets a little bit of, gets a little Bitcoin reward. But everybody participating in that is also maintaining uh, the overall ledger or helping maintain the overall ledger that keeps track of all the different transactions that have occurred in Bitcoin. So you're giving a reward to, uh, the miners who are offering up computing power to run the Bitcoin network. Uh, one of the longer term issues that may come up is that eventually we're going to top out at the number of Bitcoin that will be issued. And when that occurs, and, and that's a common question that that I got back when I was uh, working at the exchange was, uh, well, what happens when the Bitcoin miners are not being, you know, the, the reward is not really worth the dollar amount or the power consumption or the equipment that you have to have to be a miner. Uh, and the feeling is at that point, uh, you, you might be able to make a little bit of money off of helping facilitate transactions. So it, it'll see, it'll be interesting to see how that emerges. This may be one of those, may fall into one of those questions that, um, doesn't doesn't make a lot of sense, but I've got to ask it anyway. I mean, this sounds a lot like when Wikipedia came out and became this user generated online encyclopedia instead of having, you know, somebody in control of it. The users were in control of it. Is there any similarity? 
Absolutely. I think that's a, that's a great comparison, actually. You know, if you, if you think about traditional digital payments, like if I were to swipe my debit card, right, my bank is um, debiting my account and crediting the merchant's account. So my bank is acting as a, as a, a clearinghouse for that transaction. Uh, and so the transaction is going, getting cleared via that trusted third party. But with Bitcoin, uh, we still have the same fundamental problem. You know, if I make a payment in Bitcoin, someone has to debit my account and credit the merchant's account. But rather than relying on a single trusted third party, um, who, by the way, might violate that trust, uh, the Bitcoin system uh, is designed such that all the users on the system, every user who's running that Bitcoin protocol on their computer uh, works together or, or competes to be the first to process that transaction. And so as a result, it's, it's that the entire system of users is processing that transactions uh, via what we call distributed clearing, rather than relying on a single trusted third party. So I think the Wikipedia analogy works pretty well. Okay, well, let me continue that a bit. With Wikipedia, you know, we tell our uh, reporters, for instance, that Wikipedia um, is getting information from, you know, Wikipedia is not really a source. I mean, the, inf- <laughs> the, the direct source information comes from somebody else. So, you know, we've had a question, and I guess this would, this would be similar. So I, I would say that using Wikipedia is a little more risky than going to the direct source. So the question we had earlier is, is there more instability or more risk with uh, crypto currency than in other markets, for instance, and other investments? Well, it's hard to it's hard to prevent fraud with Wikipedia, right? They rely on reputation mechanisms, but uh, essentially anyone can go on and, and, and change something and it will remain changed until someone figures that out. With the Bitcoin protocol, it's a little bit different. Um, uh, since all of these uh, computers are, are competing to update the transaction ledger, um, the, it takes a lot of computing power and that's, that's costly. So, so upfront, it's a high cost to commit fraud. <laughs> and even if you were to, to successfully change that ledger in a way that um, uh, is illegitimate, uh, it's, it's not going to last very long because you would have to keep processing transactions more rapidly than the rest of the network uh, together. Uh, and, and the only way you could do that is if you had the majority of the computing power on the Bitcoin system. Um, and, and that's just uh, very unlikely um, uh, at this point. So um, uh, while the analogy with Wikipedia works pretty well, a Bitcoin is a little more robust to those sorts of uh, abuses. I want to follow up real quick with a question we got. And I honestly, I'm not even quite sure how to, to phrase it correctly, but hopefully it'll make sense to you all. But um, the question is about its use for paying off people who steal data for large organizations. That's the question. Uh, well, one of the things with once you've made a payment, it's very easy for things to uh, just kind of disappear out into the Bitcoin network and pretty difficult to try to receive retrieve your money. Uh, it's um, the most recent Bond movie. They made a comment about how all the villains seem to be out in the ether and you can't get in the same room with them anymore. Uh, and I, I thought about the, the ransomware attacks is what I believe you're referring to, uh, that, uh, you know, the, it, it is a way for people to uh, you know, get paid off and then go disappear. So that that is... Um, you know, that's a possibility. As far as the, the safety with respect to Bitcoin, um, you know, I, I think the, the sometimes when we hear about people getting scammed around Bitcoin, it's the same as uh, the person that called up my 85-year-old father and told him he'd won Publishers Clearinghouse, but he had to open up an account for them to uh, and put money in it for them to deposit money into his account. You know, which I had to intervene very quickly on. Uh, those are the kind of scams that a lot of people. Th- th- that's where the the um, worry is, but it's a worry that's just the same as uh, some of the other scams that are out there, just using dollars. Yeah, if you look, if you look at another example of of those kind of frauds taking place with with currencies that we're 
um, at least that's, that some folks are more accustomed to and therefore less likely to, to, to think of them as, as being dangerous. Um, in, in Brazil recently, they, the, the Brazilian Central Bank introduced uh, real-time clearing, so transactions would clear uh, almost instantaneously. Um, and one of the negative consequences of that is that uh, kidnappings increased by 40%. And the, the reason that happened is pretty straightforward. In the past, if you uh, kidnapped someone, you could take them to the ATM and liquidate their account. Um, but uh, now that they have that real-time clearing, you can not only liquidate their account, but you can phone up their relatives, have their relatives transfer funds and liquidate their relatives' accounts as well. So certainly there are, there are you know, bad people out there, fraudsters who will try to to, um, to, to, to get ill-gotten gains, um, uh, but that's not a problem that's unique to, to Bitcoin. All right, we're talking about cryptocurrency today on Noon Edition. We're learning a lot, of, uh, a lot of new things. We're asking a lot of questions that I hope that many of you had. If you have questions, please send them to us at news at indianapublicmedia.org or send them to at noon edition on Twitter. And we have William Luther from Florida Atlantic University, Todd Nesbitt from Ball State University and Russell Rhodes from the Kelly School up in Indianapolis uh, with us to answer your questions. Okay, so I'm gonna bring this down to um, a, a low level. Let's say somebody's um, grandpa is listening to this conversation today and saying, you know what? I think it would be cool if I went out and bought my all my grandkids some kind of uh, Bitcoin instead of giving them, you know, an envelope with a twenty dollar bill. I'm going to get them some Bitcoin for uh, a holiday present this year. Is that a good idea? Well, based on on recent uh, 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 trends, I mean, if you look at you know Bitcoin started the year at twenty nine thousand dollars. And uh, is currently fifty six, fifty eight thousand. Uh, so certainly, the value of that twenty dollars worth of Bitcoin, uh, if if you base it off of past or recent trends, would turn into something you know quite nicely for uh, uh, the grandkids. But uh, again, like there's there's risk in everything, just like any investment. Um, and so um, you know, there's there's nothing to, to be said that that's a, a worse purchase, um, you know, for. You know, the, the the grandkids you know future than uh some sort of of uh um stock or, or whatnot that uh, you could buy instead yeah i'm not i don't know if i'm seeing uh you know a great run on it but it just it kind of struck me that you know the way we're talking about it today and it's just going to become it seems to me it's just going to become more and more common that uh you know might not be a a, a bad idea so, so Todd, how, how stable, you know, do you think it is? I mean, are you, um, you know, you've been studying it for 10 years or so um, in those 10 years. I mean, do you feel like more bullish on the future of, of cryptocurrency than when you began? No, I mean, like um, if you look, I look at it more very similar to what what uh, Russell would. Uh, now his his strategy has been in, in his investments, as he described earlier, is that you know if if you're looking long term investment, um, this is you know looks really quite good. Uh, if you're one of the individuals that likes to try to do day trading, um, trying to get a you know ahead of this and and make sure you you, you buy low and sell high, there's so volatility from day to day or even hour to hour. And this, just like there is in the stock market or other exchange rates, um, that I think it's going to be very difficult um, to success, you know, successfully invest that way and, and necessarily gain. But if you're looking long term, I think that this is, um, you know, certainly does seem to still be going up in value. Uh, will it slow a little bit? Possibly. Uh, but again, I think long term wise, uh, it, it's as part of your overall investment strategy. Um, not the, the primary part, but as, as part of it, I think it would actually be uh, um, a, a, a wise investment at this point. When you're teaching sure. your students, and I'll, I'll ask the other two the same thing, and you can follow up on anything you want, but Todd, when you're teaching your students at Ball State, you know, as part of your economics classes about cryptocurrency, I mean, what are, what are one or two of the, of the key messages that you give them? Yeah, I mean, it's... Um, a lot of, and, and Will and I have both you know, concentrated on the, this idea of the medium of exchange quite a bit. 
Um, and you know, I do, I, I truly do think that the long-term value is going to be based on how reliant we are, uh, or how, how, what our expectation is about the ability for us to continue using this, at least for some exchanges that are, that are convenient for it. Um, and so really it does come down to those basic concepts of what is money. Um, you know, the medium of exchange, can we use it as a unit of account so we can price things in it and does it maintain its value or at least a gain in value relative to other goods? Uh, and so those are more of the issues that I tend to concentrate on and, you know, Bitcoin, yes, it, it, it's becoming, uh, it, it's, it certainly has that store of value in the long run. Uh, the unit of account uh, in terms of pricing it, uh, it can become difficult, I think, given the volatility uh, of the, the value of, of uh, the Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. It can be difficult to price uh, items in Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrencies. Uh, and so as a unit of account, it could be difficult there. And then the medium exchange, obviously, there, there's for certain transactions, it, it's a very good use. So those are the, the main things that I tend to, to emphasize okay. with them. All right. Well, well, I'm going to be a little more cautious here. You know, if you're thinking about uh, Christmas gifts for your grandkids, um, I don't know if Bitcoin is a, a good fit. Um, you know, uh, your <laughs> the 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 ob- objective with a with a means of payments is to make transactions. And so if you have a, a grandson or a granddaughter who has some use case where where Bitcoin is well suited to make those transactions, then by all means, uh, buy that kid some Bitcoin. But f- for most of us, um, our our friends and family are just looking at having a, a, a relatively low risk. Um, a high rate of return over over uh, over time, and uh, f- for constructing a, a portfolio for most people, I think you know you're you're much more likely to to fare well if you have um, a, a total market exchange traded fund and maybe a total market uh, a bond fund, um, and if you have some cryptocurrency, it would be a very small portion of that portfolio. I would say, you know, less than less than two percent of your portfolio should be in in cryptocurrencies. Well, let me let me go back up and say that I think that you know when I was asking that question, I think I was reminded of you know when my grandparents would give me a you know a U.S. savings bond when I was a kid or something. You know, is it similar to that? Could it be? It could be. It most definitely could. You know, it is is just a way to you know expose them to you know the financial markets, like I've done with my two kids, where I've given them a hundred shares of something every year for Christmas. Which, when they were younger, they weren't really excited about it, but they're a little <laughs> bit more excited excited about it now. Now that they are teenagers, um, I did want to address the question with respect to talking to the students about Bitcoin and also where it fits within a portfolio context text. And I'm going to reflect what Todd said and, and expand on it a little bit. Uh, there's this, this term referred to as risk capital. And uh, you know, when I have got asked about Bitcoin with students, I say, well, well, you have to think of it about as risk capital. And risk capital in a very plain way is money that you could hand me right now and I never give back to you and it doesn't change your lifestyle or your life at all. Uh, and I, I think that's a good way to initially get involved with Bitcoin. Um, I've also done some portfolio studies where uh, Bitcoin or Bitcoin futures exposure uh, actually gives you some really nice risk-adjusted performance when you blend it with uh, different versions of the whole stock and bond portfolio, uh, even if you just continuously reweight it to 1% so it doesn't become too much of a... Uh, uh, too too large of a part of your portfolio. Uh, it it hasn't really co- lately. It's been correlating with the stock market some, but it really has not correlated well with any financial assets over a long period of time, which is something that you look for uh, as far as you know lowering your portfolio risk. So that's what I, ta- I, I kind of bring it right back into talking about traditional finance when they bring it up in the classroom, uh, partially because that's what we're supposed to be talking about anyway. Yeah. I, yeah I would- so Russell, you know, one of the things we, we did invite a couple um, investment portfolio managers 
to join the show today and we we did get folks who declined and it, it kind of made I don't, I don't know what their reasoning was but it made me think they probably thought this was something that folks shouldn't be getting into yep. um I, I, so I, I guess I'm just wondering about that in terms of traditional folks who invest you know should how do you how do you convince them this is something worth looking at and is it even you know are we really at a place where we should be trying to tell people that this is something they should consider putting some money in? Um, I would never go out and, and try to twist somebody's arm to, you know, load up on Bitcoin. But if they started to ask me um, what approach I think they should take, of course, you know, you have to look at people's full financial situation, their whole portfolio of personal assets. Um, but, you know, I really would lean toward, you um, I, I hate to, I, I just hate saying money that you're not worried about losing because <laughs> I don't think that's what would happen. Um, but I think you need to take a very long-term approach and, um, you know, maybe dollar cost average if you think this is going to be um, a thing when you're, when your retirement days roll around. I'm about 20 years from retirement and that's, um, you know, th- that's the approach that I have actually taken. Yeah. Um, Russell or maybe Todd, maybe, um, do we have demographic data or anything that shows who is doing this? I think um, the information we gotten from our producers was something, what, about maybe 15, 17% of folks are dealing in this cryptocurrency. Do you know, uh, Todd? I, I'm not familiar with uh, that, that percentage. Um, one of the other two actually might be, but um, I do think that, that to kind of just build off real quickly off of um the the similarities of, of some of our past interests or past answers over the, all three of us is we all seem to actually agree that if somebody does to sh- choose to um, include cryptocurrencies as part of their investment strategy, it should be a very small chunk. Um, and you know, that, that, that one to 2% range is, is, is probably the, the, the cap. Um, and so it's all about that, that risk management overall. Um, but I do think that uh, um Overall, like whatever that percentage of people, this is to address your 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 current question, um, whatever percentage of people are are currently invested in, I think that we're going to continue to see that in, in you know increase over time, just because the younger generation is are the ones that are more just you know, just more familiar with all the technology, and it, it's it's kind of second nature at this point, and so. Um, you know, as you know, there's a lot of students that I have coming in as freshmen that already have, um, you know, a lot of uh, different purchase, small purchases of Bitcoin uh, on on various exchanges. And and so they're very much engaged. And so they're clearly there's a lot of even high school kids. Then if, if I'm getting them as freshmen, uh, there's a lot of high school kids that are that are engaged in this market. And I think that that's going to continue. Mm-hmm. So this I, I, I'm not sure if any of you all will have the answer, but I've heard that bitcoining and mining you know it's really bad for the environment um and it i've also heard that it has a lot to do with the chip shortage we're experiencing um do any of you know anything about that the environmental impacts and the effect on the chip shortage so we talked earlier about processing transactions with bitcoin and running the bitcoin protocol to do that the reality is is that it takes electricity to run those computers and so there is a, a resource cost here um, the, there are a couple things to keep in mind, though. First, um, the, the reason why people are expending so much energy to, to process transactions and thereby mine Bitcoin today is because the rewards, that is the new Bitcoin that's generated when a batch of transactions is processed, are still pretty high. Those rewards fall in the long run, though. In fact, they fall to zero. And eventually, in the long run, this system is going to depend exclusively on transaction transaction fees. That is what people are willing to pay to process those transactions. At that point, uh, we shouldn't worry too much about the resource costs of Bitcoin. There's no reason to expect that they would be higher than processing transactions through uh, some other uh, payment, payment system. The second thing to keep in mind is that that Bitcoin transactions are processed in batches. If there's one transaction in that batch, if there's a hundred transactions in that batch, 
it doesn't really affect the amount of resources that are used to process that batch of transactions. So even if we, if we think that the energy expended on Bitcoin today is very high, um, that doesn't mean that one should not make transactions uh, with, with Bitcoin or should not uh, hold Bitcoin because the marginal cost, that is, if you decide to make a transaction with Bitcoin, it's basically zero. Uh, there's, there's not, it's not like there's going to be more energy used because you make a transaction with, with Bitcoin. That batch of transactions would have been processed whether your transaction was in the batch or not. Um, and so there's kind of a disconnect there between the total cost of the system and the, the cost that individuals should keep in mind uh, when, when thinking about whether or not to make a transaction. So I'm going to, we only have about two minutes to go. And I know, you know, at IU, there's usually a, a road show every November where economists just kind of forecast different parts of the economy for the next uh, 12 months or so. So I'm, I'm going to ask you to ha- put on your forecaster hats uh, when it comes to cryptocurrency. If we're going to have this conversation a year from now, will, um, will there be anything new that we would be talking about? Well, there will certainly be something that's new, but, uh, you know, um, it's hard to predict uh, the, the future. Uh, so um, I, I think of it a lot like, you know, if you're in, say, the, the late 1990s and you're on the Internet, um, you probably got a good, a good guess that search engines are going to be very important in the future. But it would be really hard to, to say that, that Google is going to win the day. Right. And likewise, here with with cryptocurrencies, this is a it's a very cool technology. Um, You can see ways in which it can be useful uh, now and in the future. But making very precise predictions, the kind of predictions that you could profit off of is is just very challenging at the moment. Okay, thank you. I, I have one more question that came in from Alice, one of our listeners. What is a Bitcoin ATM and are there any located uh, anywhere around here that anybody knows about? Uh, Bitcoin ATM is where you can uh, physically go up, put your ATM card in and um, convert things to either to a Bitcoin wallet, or you can actually get a piece of paper that represents the Bitcoin with uh, one of those really cool codes on it. Uh, I, because SIBO was so involved in it, we actually had a Bitcoin ATM uh, adjacent to the building where the exchange was. Uh, and one of my coworkers actually bought 20 Bitcoin back when it was about two or $3 and he still has it good for him. Um, but that's, that's what a Bitcoin, uh, ATM is. It's just a kind of a physical way that you can go about, uh, you know, changing cash into uh, Bitcoin. Okay. As for where, whether there are any around here, I would tell you, I went and looked, um, I Googled Bitcoin ATM a couple of days ago, and it shows locations of some around the Bloomington area. You'll have to do that for yourself. We're out of time. I want to thank our guest today, William Luther from Florida Atlantic University, Todd Nesbitt from Ball State University, and Russell Rhodes from the IU Kelly School of Business in Indianapolis. Thank you. It's been a, a great conversation today for our producers, Holden Abshear and Benta Boutier. And for engineer John Bailey, for co-host Sarah Whitmire, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks a lot for listening. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 